there's a cliche saying out there, but it's so good. Uh, trauma that's not transformed is transmitted. And so if, if I'm doing some gaslighting behavior, then I've been gaslit, then they've been gaslit, then so on and so forth. This is a relational dynamic that's happening. What's incredible is when you realize that dynamic is happening, if you realize, oh, wow, I do tend to, I do tend to invalidate, you now have an incredible opportunity to break that cycle from your family. And so it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful opportunity that again, tra traumatic reactions usually are adaptive at one point in time, right? And now it's become problematic, but you get to change that process. Hi, this is the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity. I'm Liana Chan with my co-host, and Monta. And Eliana, <laughs> <laughs> uh, please introduce our wonderful guest today. So yes, we have a very special guest, Jeremy Lang. He is um, a doctoral student in his second year um, in a clinical psychology program in California. I mean, he's we will not say expert, he's a student and studying trauma, specifically um, working with individuals and couples who have a history of complex trauma utilizing a combination of relation, relational and body-based approaches. So we're gonna get into more of what that actually means um, and how um, yoga is part of your exploration or your, how would you say, study of dealing with trauma. Yeah. So we're gonna get into that because what, and the reason why we have you here, um, apart from wanting to have you here for a while, <laughs> I'm thinking that um, trauma and romantic relationships is really important. Um, yeah. The timing is also so perfect because last week we had um, a conversation about body keeps the score. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of these, it's a, Body Keeps a Score is a foundational book on trauma, as you know. And um, we got into a really interesting conversation that was sort of um, uh, very nuanced, but it made me realize, oh, you know what? I need more clarification on what trauma means, um, the different types of trauma, and also... Um, well, what happened with our conversation was I said that I had not personally experienced trauma. Um, and it sort of spurred a really interesting conversation about how people minimize trauma and also, um, but at the same time sort of blurred the definitions of trauma in my mind. And I found it hard to articulate why I thought I didn't have trauma and what that meant, you know? So, um, because I also thought, intergenerational trauma, like, mm -hmm. what is that for you? Right. But I think as we, um, have discussed before, generational trauma is kind of almost inevitable when it's in a family dynamic, like if, mm. you know, but I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not that well-versed in it. But so, so explain to us a little bit. Um, when I said 
that I've not been through this type of trauma. Is that is that a possibility that that could be true? That there are some people who haven't been through trauma? Are you of that mindset? That um, yeah, give us a little bit of the clinical definition so that I'm not. So I think that in talking about trauma, it's kind of it's kind of tricky because there are the clinical definitions of what trauma is. And then there is some more of the popular culture definitions of what trauma is. And I think that that happens with a lot of different things. Um, one of my uh, biggest pet peeves is when people will talk about like the unconscious and the, the popular culture notion of the unconscious is kind of this like, well, it was kind of out of my awareness and then I realized it. It's like, well, then that's not your unconscious. Your unconscious is it's your unconscious to it. So the clinical definition of unconscious is complete unawareness whereas the popular culture definition of it is more like slightly out of awareness. And for trauma, I think that a similar dynamic happens because generally speaking, if you just look up like the definition of trauma, a trauma is in essence an injury. If it's a physical trauma to the body, then usually there's some kind of injury that results. When it comes to um, the psychological definition, it's, it's about an emotional injury. And there's a whole bunch of different types of emotional injuries uh, that can happen that way. And it can result from a physical trauma uh, and brought up in a generational trauma. Well, there's, there's medical trauma and there are, there, as, as this field progresses, um, they're, they're getting more nuanced with types of trauma and how those affect us differently. Um, a lot of types of trauma are typically relationally based, uh, like developmental traumas, complex traumas intergenerational traumas, medical traumas don't tend to be um, relationally based. Um, it's usually from either medical procedure or something to that effect. Um, so it, it kind of depends. Um, the clinical definition, if we're going to, if we're going to go straight with that, um, it's, I think it's best to look at um, like the DSM, uh, which is what psychologists and psychiatrists use to diagnose mental health conditions. Um, and look at the uh, diagnosis for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and that's something that can be Googleable. You don't have to go out and buy the $100 <laughs> desk book for it. But basically it's, it's anybody that has witnessed a traumatic, witnessed or experienced a traumatic event. And that can be a natural disaster. It can be a serious injury. It can be a threat to my personal safety, a terrorist act, uh, sexual assault. Uh, something that in essence leaves the person with uh, the threat of death or serious, serious injury. Um, it challenges the person's core sense of safety. Um, whether or not it, because in research from like veterans, we, some people will come back from really awful situations and they'll have a diagnosis of PTSD and have, um, and actually have that. Uh, some people don't. They both went through the same traumatic experience because remember traumatic experience is something that challenges a sense of safety. Some people come back without the diagnosis and some people don't. So Fascinating in itself. there's a whole lot of nuance that, that builds with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was very, um, I think, hesitant to admit to having <laughs> trauma when I didn't feel like I did because I didn't want to minimize. I mean, ironically, it's like the situation where I didn't want to minimize trauma by saying, mm -hmm. oh, I, I'm 
experienced it um, because I think of it as a very real thing. And it's not just like, oh, everyone has trauma. And then on the other hand, I wanted to make sure that any of our listeners who might have had trauma and might be minimizing what they've been through don't actually sure. take away from what I'm saying is that like, yeah. oh, you went through trauma. It's like, no big deal. Just get over it. Like, that's not what I'm saying at right. all. Right. You know, right. so I just wanted to be clear um, with that. And um, so, but if I was someone who was like thinking, oh, maybe I have minimized trauma, <laughs> like what, where would you even start, say? I think that if, if somebody has, has in a situation where they think I may have gone through a traumatic experience, right? So we, we kind of set up what, what is a traumatic experience, something that causes me to feel um, a sense of threat to my sense of safety, whether that's physical or emotional, um, to, to see if, if there is a trauma reaction or like a PTSD kind of diagnosis, I'd like to call that a trauma reaction. Um, you look for certain symptoms that are coming up. So you're looking for um, intrusions, which are like flashbacks or images or memories. Sometimes it can be even smells. And these intrusions are not things that are very comfortable. They, they don't feel good um, when that happens. Uh, sometimes you can have a memory from the past pop up and it's like, oh, nostalgia. Well, that would be the opposite end of the spectrum of, <laughs> of what a traumatic memory intrusion would be. Uh, the next one is going to be avoidance. And this one's pretty key is people that have gone through a traumatic experience and then qualify for the PTSD diagnosis, they're going to avoid things that even come close to reminding them of that situation. So let's say somebody got into a, um, a really scary um, situation on a flight. Let's say the flight was going and um, there was a big turbulence and it dropped let's just say a thousand feet, let's be extreme here. And it was really traumatic for the person because they felt a sense of safety threatened, right? Now they avoid airports and they just drive everywhere. That would be kind of an avoidance. They don't go anywhere near anything that reminds them of that. Um, there's, there are typically alterations in how they think and how they feel. Uh, so if I go to the airport, then I'm going to die is a bit of a catastrophization, especially with the statistics that we know I'm flying, right? Um, mood, there can be um, some problems with mood, like I'm bad, uh, nobody should trust me a lot of times is what happens with that. Another common one that I, that I see in uh, the clients that I work with and is all over the literature is people that have had traumatic experiences and then kind of qualify in this tend to minimize their experience. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's something like dropping from the air so there was no physical actual threat or some really, really, really like wartime or sexual assault or something, there's always kind of this, no, no, somebody else has it worse. Mine isn't that bad. Um, and then the final one is um, alterations. They call them alterations in arousal and reactivity. Um, that's kind of the official clinical term. Think hyper, hyper awareness and hyper arousal. So they'll be in a situation and a loud noise will happen and it'll really scare them. Um, like to the point of almost having a flashback. If you think the kind of the stereotype that is really good here, um, and I can kind of give a little bit of advocacy for this, is for veterans on the 4th of July, that, especially if they have PTSD, that is not a fun time for them <laughs> because they're hearing explosions 
And instead of being able to go, oh, hey, that's a firework, it's difficult for their mind to separate this isn't that thing that happened. And I think that that, so that's the clinical definition. One of the ways that I think is really useful to think about if somebody is having a traumatic response to something is it's a, it's a response that's quite considerably out of proportion to the thing that's happening. And the reason why that happens, so let's say somebody, say somebody cuts you off in traffic and for Ann and I that live in LA, you know, that, that's kind of an everyday occurrence. That's going to be annoying. And it's going to be like, oh, that jerk. And you're probably going to get, let's say an arousal level of annoyance on a scale of one to 10. You're probably going to hit like a three. If you're me, maybe a four. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's say, let's say the person got into a really bad accident 10 years ago or had a parent that died in a car accident, right? Or some other, there's a whole bunch of things that could happen. And they go instead of to a three, they go to a seven or an eight and they're cussing and they're angry and they're tailgating the person and they're honking. Well, what's happened? And I love this language. It's like a time capsule has exploded into the present. And now all of the weight from that last incident that threatened them or that they witnessed that threat is now on top of that normal reactivity to what's going on. So it's, it's like, it's difficult to determine the present, what's happening here in the present from what's actually happened in the past. And that's the thing that's reactive because when we're dealing with the thing that's in the present and we're able to stay present, we can regulate, we can, oh, that person's probably having a bad day, or maybe they need to, you know, get to the bathroom real quick or some reason right. that <laughs> we can kind of rationalize. That's what but I when always that time capsule. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When the time capsule explodes from the past, it's really hard to do that. And we become completely flooded and overwhelmed. And I think that that's probably a good way of thinking about if somebody is uh, feeling like, I, th I think that this, I think I might have this, then I'd say the very first step is um, to contact a, a therapist that is trained in, in trauma work. Um, and you can explore to see if, if that's actually what's going on, because they'll be able to guide the person in in determining whether that fits for them or not. Can you talk more about uh, what you're doing with with yoga and um, and relational? Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because Buddy Buddy keeps the score. Did mention yoga as um, a modality for dealing with trauma, but how does it specifically work into relationships? Yeah. yeah how do you work? Yeah. So. Uh, <sighs> The, um, the specific trauma, so in Body Keeps the Score, Van der Kolk talks about utilizing yoga as a potential method. And it's interesting because in that book, because that was written in 2014, um, he talks about it as something that they're potentially looking at or they're going to look forward to or whatever the case is. Um, and today that what he was talking about actually was doing research at that time. Um, started in, um, I believe it was 2009. Um, and today they, there's numerous studies. It's called trauma center, trauma sensitive yoga. And um, the guy that the primary guy that developed it, his name's David Emerson um, out of the justice resource Institute, the uh, trauma and embodiment center, I believe is the correct name for it. Um, and the whole, the whole research process that they did was um, they were looking at the struggles that sometimes happen when talk therapy, um, when it's not quite enough. And this isn't specifically to 
bash or talk down on talk therapy. I love talk therapy and I think it's important, but it's like, how can we have both of these things? And that's really relevant to the, the research that I'm doing that I'll uh, caveat to in just a second. Um, but how can we use something that helps a person get in touch with their, with their body to help heal this? To talk about that, I have to talk about two actually different types of trauma. Um, single instance trauma, or what we normally think of as PTSD, like we just talked about, and then something called complex trauma. Sometimes it's referred to as developmental trauma or complex PTSD, CPTSD. Um, but basically it's, it's a bit different than a single instance trauma. So single instance trauma is something bad happens, uh, threat to my life or sense of safety. Uh, I have a reaction to it. Um, so it's just one time, one thing happens. Complex trauma tends to happen in uh, childhood, um, can happen in adulthood, but predominantly the research is about childhood. And you remember we talked about those categories that it, that it affects, the PTSD affects, right? The intrusions and the you know, arousal. So with complex trauma, the areas of impairment are attachment, so relational dynamics are impaired, um, their, their biology, how they, how they relate to their physical body is, is impaired, uh, affect regulation, being able to control and be present and soothe their own feelings. Uh, there's dissociation symptoms where they feel like they disconnect from themselves. They usually have a hard time controlling uh, their behavior, so impulsive symptoms. Cognitions, we talked about that with PTSD, some thoughts that are, that are difficult to control. Uh, and then they tend to have a very, very um, kind of a self-contempt, a hard view of themselves on top of the stuff that we talked about for PTSD. So the, the uh, intrusive thoughts, all that stuff is still there. So complex trauma is, pun intended, more complex. <laughs> and it comes from a lot of times in the research, we see that come from uh, childhood sexual abuse. Um, but it can come from things like chronic emotional misattunement. So the child is, is crying or needs something and, and the parent just isn't, isn't present. And that can be for a whole number of different reasons that would take us down a different bunny trail um, that we can touch on later if, if you'd like. Um, but it's, it's this chronic misattunement that basically tells the child over and over again, your emotional experience is either wrong or is invalid. And so there's this like, I don't know how to trust myself to know what my emotional experience is. When I go to them, I can't trust them because they're telling me that something that I'm feeling isn't there. So like it just kind of messes with a sense of safety and sense of trust and it creates a whole bunch of dynamic problems. So in, so this is where the, the trauma center, trauma sensitive yoga comes in is because it specifically is working to address complex trauma, which is a lot more difficult. I, I don't wanna say it's more difficult to treat. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the feel. It's, it takes more time because- It's more complex if, to treat. <laughs> great, exactly. <laughs> if, if, it's, if it's a childhood thing that's been happening for 10 years, it's not gonna take four sessions to, to get out of, unfortunately. Uh, four sessions can make a giant difference, um, but typically it takes a little bit more time to work through. Part of that is because there is fundamentally this disruption in the person's ability to be able to sense and know what's going on in their body. That's where yoga comes in, specifically trauma center, trauma sensitive yoga. One of the things that they're looking at to improve is um, a person's 
in essence, their ability to get in touch with what actually am I feeling inside and then being able to feel like they have the freedom and the agency to act on what they're feeling inside. So instead of, I feel off, but I can't say anything because I'm just going to be shamed or I'm not great or whatever the case is, trauma-sensitive yoga through the trauma center works on focusing on what is happening in your body while instilling a sense of agency. Mm. So then if you're working with couples, is there something where they would do yoga together or is it, are you treating the individual? So that's, that's actually the, like the, the bulk of my research and my dissertation is actually working to pull together um, some of the, the somatic research. So people like um, Ogden in uh, sensory motor psychotherapy and um, Peter Levine and polyvagal theory that work, I'm sorry, uh, Peter Levine in a, a somatic experiencing uh, Stephen Porges in polyvagal theory. All of these things where these researchers are talking about um, how movement can heal, mm. combining it with what we know about couples therapy, about relational dynamics between people, and then combining that with some of the um, some partner exercises. Um, that's what I am attempting to do in my research. So it's not something that's been done yet. Um, and it's probably going to be something that takes a little bit of work to do because it becomes even more complex when you get two people in the room. But my idea is we know that specifically complex trauma is best healed in the context of a safe attachment relationship. And so if we can create a dynamic where the people are learning how to move and breathe together and feel safe, the my anticipation is that's going to have long lasting effects into other areas of their relationship too. My plan is to develop this as a program that runs alongside a traditional talk therapy so that they're, they're, they're doing both things at the same time to increase intimacy, marital satisfaction, um, partnership satisfaction, all that stuff while working on either one person's trauma or both people. And I want to say too, Whenever I talk about complex trauma and talk about relationships, um, I think I think of it in relational constructs. So if one person has trauma has a trauma history and they're in a relationship with somebody else, both people are going to be experiencing the trauma within that relationship context together. Um, and it's it's tricky because it can get close to saying it's the person with the trauma's fault, but that's not, that's not true. And that's something that I think people need to hear is both people will be experiencing it, but it's, it's not one person or the other's fault because a relational dynamic is, is it's, it's a two-sided, it's a two-sided dynamic. It's a dance. If one person stops dancing, there is no dance. So as long as the couple is still dancing, both of them are in that process. And that's and that process is the thing that gets in the way that needs to be interrupted, changed, and then a new dance gets to form. And my experience of uh, being with a partner who has complex PTSD, mm -hmm. um, there's always this, what you were saying, like the, you need to, that person needs to feel safe. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. a huge uh, thing to try to tackle. Um, 
And I heard you say like breathing together and trying to create that kind of sense of safety. Are there any other things that you could recommend or that you are trying to um, trying to prove that would <laughs> that your your hypothesis that sure. would help for a situation like that? So there are two part of part of my dissertation is going to be actually coming up with because the the trauma sensitive yoga it's not a it's not a prescripted series of yoga postures and poses to do it's more of how to position yourself as a teacher in in the dynamic so for example um, and I'm going to get to the the part of the the question that you're asking because this will relate directly to that so you've, you've, both of you have been to a yoga class before I assume. Yeah. You know, the, the, the teacher will say, um, you know, stretch your neck to the, the right and you'll notice the sensation and the, 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 the notice where the tension is and then uh, move to the left and stuff like that. Right. Take a step forward, move into warrior two, blah, 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 blah. So in trauma center, trauma sensitive yoga, we use, they use much more tentative and uh, empowering language. So you're going to hear them say things like, you might explore moving your neck a little bit. Mm. And there's pauses and, and, and space. And if, and you might just notice the sensation that happens. And there isn't a prescripted tension, good or bad. It's just notice the sensation that happens. And it might feel better to, to maybe go over to the left side, or it might be better to stay over on the right side. You might enjoy doing some neck rolls that might feel better for you. And just maybe notice the sensation. And if noticing the sensation feels very intense, you might just notice what it's like to breathe as you, as you move through. So there's a lot of tentative and inviting language to instill uh, agency and to instill, it's okay to look and feel what's going on inside your body. And it's okay to, if that doesn't feel great, it's okay to move and do something that actually does feel better. Um, so that kind of language. So I'm working on trying to figure out a way to bring that into doing partner yoga, um, which is going to be co-movement, co-breathing kind of things that's, that's more suggestive. So stand, getting the, the teacher into a stance to be able to lead that process. Now, that said, I am going to make suggestions of some exercises that they can do together so that they're not just sitting there going, well, I have no idea what to do, right? <laughs> one of them, one of the first ones is, uh, have you ever done something called, um, it's called a bunch of different things, but I call it like the yes, no exercise. Have you ever um, heard anything like that I before? Heard, I have heard about it. Okay. Um, but can you, can you remind me? Sure. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. No. Great. Definitely so, remind me <laughs> for, for, so, for the purposes of, of our listeners. I do, I do remember absolutely. that in the weekend that yes, but yes. <laughs> so you would sit, you would sit across from your partner and I'd be assessing, um, figuring a way to assess what level of uh, reactivity do they have? Because if, if, if one partner or both partners have a really, really high level of activity, um, facing each other can actually be very activating. So I might not start with something like this. I might actually start with them not facing each other, but just simply being in the same space together and, and just working on breathing individually next to each other. 
if, if there's a lot of reactivity, that's what I would, that's what I would suggest, which then also raises something that's really important to mention that sometimes uh, therapists that aren't trauma informed will miss therapists, coaches, people that are trying to help is that breath and meditation practices for somebody that has complex trauma, especially um, it, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't work quite, quite the same because going inside and getting in touch with their body doesn't feel safe. And that's what meditation and breathing is all about. So, so again, I'm going to be doing a lot of assessing to figure out where the two are, because I want to set them up in a position where they actually can experience something in their body differently than what they've experienced in the past before. So the yes, no exercise, sit across from each other. And one person asks the other person for something that they know that both of them have pre-negotiated is something that's very neutral and is an easy yes to. And so um, that could be a, um, may I have a high five? Or may, if there's a little less reactivity, may I have a hug? Um, or can you pass me a coaster? Something that's just very, very neutral. Um, and the person sitting across from them first says, yes. And they ask again, person says yes, ask again, person says yes. Uh, and the idea is not to process or explore, but just to become aware of what happens inside when, when you say yes, and what happens inside when you hear yes. You don't, it doesn't have to be shared. Um, it can be shared if, if, it, if they want, but it's, it's about what, just what's going on as that's happening. And this is why I prefaced with, if going internally is, is a bit reactive for the person, then we wouldn't want to jump to this yet. And then, and then the reverse happens, the, then they tra tra trade places and take turns. Um, and then the next one is they ask, will you, will you give me a high five? And the person says, no, even if they want to say yes, they say no. And you do that about seven times. And then what's happening? And so they begin to get in touch with what is it like to comply with a request? And what is it like to set up a boundary? And so they can begin to feel what, what is that space between? Because sometimes saying no will feel like I'm, I'm disappointing the person. And that processing part, my, my hope is that, that that happens in the talk therapy part and in the, the partner trauma-sensitive yoga part is just about noticing and being and experiencing. Um, another one, if, if there's even less reactivity, uh, can be a breath exercise where um, they, uh, the partner, one partner puts their hand on the other partner's like chest up here, and then they put their, their hand on their stomach. So like this, and then vice versa. And then they just breathe together, take five breaths in. And then again, just notice what's happening for you. What do you notice happening for them? And just being present with, with what's going on between. I may even not preface, just note or notice what's happening because I'm wanting them to just be present with it. And if they have a question in their head, they're going to be thinking about the question and not necessarily the experience. So I'm, I'm telling the questions to you because that's kind of the theory that I'm driving. But those would be two examples of some practices that I'm thinking about including in, uh, in my dissertation and hopefully someday a book. <laughs> So I'm hearing that invitational language is key and absolutely to making everything be safe. And then it's a focus on being present 
and then yes. being connected um, internally. Right, right, yes, right. yeah. And that, that being present piece is tricky because like we said, sometimes that time capsule from the past explodes into the present. And so being able to start to learn how to differentiate between present things that are happening and past explosions is key because then I can communicate, hey, I think a time capsule is exploding for me right now. This is what I need versus what the hell, what are you doing? An explosion. <laughs> So you said earlier that, um, you know, it's never just one partner that you can just mm -hmm. blame. You know, it's like dance. It's a, is there any situation where you're like, I have to stop therapy or where the dance is not, is there any situation where the dance is not mm. happening, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really, really great and important question uh, for anybody that does any kind of couples work, whether they're a coach or a therapist or just a friend sitting down with a couple, a couple that's like, we're having problems. Could you just listen to us is, is just noticing the, how, how easily activated and how intense the activation is, because if a person is getting so activated uh, that they're dissociating very, very hard. And so they're, they're, they're in essence, they're completely leaving the room um, at the, like the most minor uh, activation um, because unfortunately what they've been through has been so incredibly threatening and scary that anything that gets close to that is like, I can't be here. It's not safe. It's safer if I just mentally leave then that's gonna be a thing where I would say, I think it might be better to pursue individual therapy for a little while uh, and then come back with the purpose of coming back to the coupleship because one of the, one of the part of the reason why I think that the using the coupleship, uh, the partnership to work on the trauma is a lot of times if one person, if, if there is a partnership that that there is trauma present, neither one or both, and one person goes into some kind of trauma therapy, they eventually do a lot of growth and they do a lot, they start noticing the triggers and they start kind of healing some of those, those wounds um, and they start, they start growing. Well, that necessarily is gonna change the dynamic between the two people, but this person existed in the dynamic beforehand. And I don't know about you, but in, in, in my relationships, if something changes and nobody's talking about it, it causes a lot of anxiety for me. <laughs> I don't know what's happening and I want to know what's happening. And that could in essence be kind of re-traumatizing for the person because they're, they're bringing something new in that they want to feel validated in, but it's not the same relationship dynamic. And that can easily threaten this person because it's like in the past, you came to me with everything that you had a problem with and I was there for you. And that felt good that I could be in kind of that caretaker role, which is a horizontal or a vertical relationship and not a horizontal one. Right. But now all of a sudden you're starting to do this and it feels like you're going away from me. Of course, they're going to be like, no, 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 come back. Let me keep taking care of you because it feels, but what's really happening is they're learning how to connect in with themselves and ask for what they need rather than just expect it. So there are situations where that happens, where I would suggest individual therapy on both ends, but my goal would be so that we can come back to 
the couples therapy also so that there isn't this feeling of our couples therapist is abandoning us because that's another fear a lot of times that people that go especially through complex trauma will feel even if the therapist is really like this is for your benefit it can still feel that way um <clears throat> what about um this idea of uh, needing to feel safe but if you have trauma and you have those time capsules you might your safety your sense of safety might be skewed i mean not to use that sort of triggering language but sure, it might not actually sure. be safe <laughs> yeah yeah so I'm going to say something that uh, I think has become a little bit more popular, um, but still might not be super popular. Uh, I'm not I'm not really a big fan of the whole like safe space thing, um, especially when it first came out. I, I can remember thinking, but life isn't safe. Like mm -hmm. if if I grow up in a room where there is never any kind of threat to anything, basically I'm I'm detaching away and out of life. I'm not, I'm not really truly in reality. There are threats. It's kind of the, the thing that I think of is it's like the, the, the chicken that you, you break open the shell for it. Um, they don't develop the neck muscles to be able to, because that's a part of pushing out, right? Well, but it's safer for the chicken. They don't have to struggle as much. <laughs> Sometimes the struggle is a part of the process. I would, I would propose that instead of creating a safe space, and I think that language is okay, as long as we define what that means. Safe doesn't mean that you're not going to be challenged. Safe doesn't mean that you're not going to be uncomfortable. And I would tell my, my clients, I would much rather you feel uncomfortable and triggered or activated or whatever language that you want in here with me so that I can help ground you and I can be present with you so that you can learn how to take that with you outside of here when maybe you won't have that same kind of support structure. I would, so I think that the most important thing is to have a space where you feel adequately challenged to the level that you're at. So it's kind of like, um, um, like edges and boundaries, right? I think that this is appropriate in, in, in thinking about a bunch of different areas, right? Um, an edge is something to, to notice and then maybe let somebody help kind of push you into, whereas a boundary is something to respect and watch. Noticing how to be able to name those two things is something that is going to cause discomfort because when you have a, a very, very big traumatic history, everything's gonna feel like boundary, but some things actually aren't but you've been so primed that anything that comes close to that is gonna be threatening that I wanna stay away from all of it. Well, therapy isn't, therapy is more about how do we help you walk into that where you can feel strong enough to be able to continue moving through that. And part of that process is maybe feeling a little less safe. It's a really interesting distinction, actually, because, yeah, you're right that the language around I don't feel safe. I don't, you know, it, um, sometimes in conversations that are uncomfortable, you do have to feel a little, you know, like a, a conversation about racism. <laughs> That's like very right. like big buzzword right now, you know, like, yeah, let's have the uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> and it's always right. Like, right. But there's well, so and I would I want to caveat, too. I think it's important that somebody is able to feel safe in themselves. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a part of what the process of trauma therapy uh, can do is, is help the person feel safe within themselves. Because then if they walk into a situation where it isn't safe, they can feel grounded and safe within themselves to be present in there. Because of my social location being a, you know, cisgendered, intersexual white male, there's not a lot of places where I don't feel safe, you know, and, and that's something that I really have to listen to people when they talk about this, this place doesn't feel safe. I have to listen to that because that's not something that I'm very directly aware of. I can walk around my neighborhood at night and I'm not worried about anything happening to me because I feel safe within myself, because that's what the privilege of the system affords me is I can feel safe within myself. That's a, not exactly the same comparison, but it's a similar comparison. The more safe that one can feel in themselves, the more safe that they can feel in an environment that isn't the most safe. What about the idea of like, cause I've heard this before with people who have experienced trauma, especially I think CPTSD, where they feel like their environment that they grew up with in was unsafe. And so now what feels safe to them is an unsafe relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're, I'm using those terms, I don't know, <laughs> too vaguely, sure. but um, how- It's like going back to something that's familiar is safe. Yeah, so if you're in a relationship with someone and it's actually extremely just um, maybe dysfunctional or like re-traumatizing, um, what, yeah, how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? That's, yeah, that's, that is, that's a million dollar question because I I can't tell you how many friends, therapists, coaches, people that I hear will say, oh, this friend, they just, they just keep going back to the same relationship. I'm at my wits end because I don't know how they don't see it. Mm -hmm. Like what Anne was saying, if that is a dynamic that was created in childhood, then it's like, if, if, if childhood communicated chaos is safety, then that's in essence what they're going to be trying to find in in the relationships because there's there's an element that feels safe to that, and so they'll they'll if they're not in a relationship that is chaotic, they'll in essence unconsciously. And I want to be very clear about my original definition: there is no awareness of this. Right. Unconsciously pull for that chaos. They are not doing it on purpose, um, but it's it's there's something in them that says, I don't know what to expect in this situation. I know what to expect in chaos. And the ironic thing is at one level, you can actually see a trauma response as a incredibly adaptive safety response in childhood. So if they wouldn't have adapted to a chaos environment to the point where they know how to operate within there, they would not have survived that emotionally or physically. So they did that, their psyche, their body, they did that to be able to help them survive the situation. And they did, and they thrived through it. Now it's getting a little bit in the way and it's causing some emotional issues for them. A lot of times I'll hear hear a lot of language and I might be bunny trailing a little bit if I am, uh, we'll go back. Um, But I think this is important because we'll hear a lot of times on social media and stuff, or you need to get rid of toxic people in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to make the assertion that there, there aren't toxic people. Now I think that there are some people that, uh, you know, sans sociopaths and psychopaths where there's this, this actual purposeful intention to hurt. Mm-hmm. 
I think that most of the time, people are actually operating from trauma reactions, from unconscious trauma reactions. It doesn't mean that it's okay. And we can say that their behaviors are toxic, but the person isn't toxic. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make, because if I can say I'm leaving that toxic person, then I'm not looking at anything that's going on for me that would have me drawn to that kind of a relationship. And Matt's careful too, because we don't want to self-blame. We don't want to self-blame and say, this is my, I'm the common denominator, because that's also a common thing that I'll hear people, well, it's my fault. I keep finding the same person over and over again. So I'm the common denominator. There's something wrong If you wrong meet 10 me. assholes, you're the asshole. <laughs> yeah, but exactly. actually you might've met 10 assholes. <laughs> exactly. But, but the, the question is this, this, this process of what's happening for me? What, what is it about this that feels safe for me? Because in that process of that self-exploration, you're able to go, I see this thing in my past that I felt shame for, I feel angry towards, that, that I maybe need to give compassion towards that part of myself that was adaptive so that that part can, can heal. Um, and I know now that I've bunny trailed from the original question. So usually I can come back, my <laughs> therapy brain missed this one. <laughs> No, I feel like it was relevant to die bunny trail with you. <laughs> that that happens. See, see, here's a perfect example of of pulling a dynamic. I bunny trailed, and so you bunny trailed with me, right? There's we did it together. <laughs> um, I feel like Anna's thinking so. <laughs> no, I uh, I I was reflecting in things on my life. <laughs> that was all. That's always okay. great. All right, right. Learning self-worth and having healthy boundaries and that. Yeah. 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 For somebody that, that has any level of complex trauma or one thing that's important that I think uh, uh, Ileana kind of gets at is how do we determine whether something is trauma or not? And I think that this question, I think there's actually two questions that are embedded in this one, which is, from a research societal standpoint, how do we look at this? Because if I create, for example, a um, let's say an assessment to assess depression for somebody, and I give it to, to 100 people, and all of them test positive for depression, and then I give it to 1,000 people, and 1,000 people test positive for depression, and everybody <laughs> I give it to tests positive for depression, well, my construct is there's a problem with it. You can I'm be like actually, a Scientologist, actually. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody has the little <laughs> hand thing, right? Right, yeah. So it's like my, my construct, the depression construct that I'm doing, maybe it's not depression, they have maybe something else is going on. So from that meta view, saying everybody has trauma can be problematic. And actually research says about 70% uh, of people do. Um, from an individual level, though, now we get into a different thing, which is, which is the whole subjective experience of a person. Because a person could be raised in a household that the parents were supportive and caring and provided for them and all the stuff that they needed, but there was a temperament difference and their subjective experience was feeling missed and misunderstood. And that can be an attachment injury. And if that happens enough, the attachment injury over time can lead to something like a developmental or a complex trauma. I'm, I'm being very reductionistic here, but it's not necessarily all this bad stuff specifically happened. It can be a, 
I didn't feel like anybody understood me. Think about kiddos that have ADHD and grow up being like, nobody, I'm feeling this intense, crazy emotions and nobody understands my experience. That is a perfect recipe for uh, attachment injuries of that kind. I mean, I, I, I feel like that sums up a lot of my girlfriend's uh, dating experience with people mm. at, around this time who had ADHD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I happen to know a little bit about that diagnosis personally. Uh, uh. So in relationships, how, when does it move into abuse and how do you mm. sort that out? You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. How do you recognize if the relationship dynamic or if the actions of the other person are, feel abusive towards you? Yes. Yeah. I think that's a great question. Um, and I'm going to use one of the terms that's kind of a hot button term that we hear used all over the time. Uh, and that term is gaslighting, right? Okay. Because, <laughs> because from, a, from a construct standpoint, if we're not talking about two specific individuals from a construct standpoint, gaslighting is abusive. It's saying to the other person, the, ex the emotional experience that you were telling me that you're having is not correct. And I'm going to make you think that you're crazy for feeling that way. So gaslighting is, is really at the lowest, at the deepest level, a, a very manipulative invalidation of the other person. Nine times out of 10, I made that statistic up. The only, <laughs> the only type of, I don't want to be careful with that because I don't want to just pull, you know, <laughs> most of the time, the people that are going to be doing something like that consciously, awarefully, are going to be people that are like actually psychopathic or sociopathic, or there's, there's some kind of neurological thing that's happening for them. Most of the time, somebody that is, that acts in gaslighting ways was gaslit. Right. And then that person was, and then that person was, and then that person was, and it goes back and back because, because they're, they're, they're basically gaslighting is a trauma reaction. It's, it's, they're feeling like, I don't know what to do with this emotional experience. So I'm just going to control and bulldoze the situation and make everything where I can understand what it is, because that's how I feel safe. Now, that doesn't mean that that behavior isn't toxic, but if I'm in a conversation with somebody and I say to them, you're gaslighting me. Well, the conversation is now over. That's a power move. They can't say anything back to that because if they do, they're still doing it. Right. So, so check this out because this actually shows that relational dynamic that I was happening that, that, that I've been talking about. Right. So let's say person A says uh, something that causes person B to feel gaslit. Right. So person B says, you gaslit me. The reason why they're saying that is because gaslighting necessarily creates this power imbalance that says you're wrong, I'm right. And so what they're doing is they're reacting to that to try and get back some of the power that they just felt was stripped from them by saying you're gaslighting me. And now we're just going to be doing this and it's going to spiral out of control. Like, even if it's true, like even if it is true, like so, so you really do feel you are being gaslit. Sure. And I think that there, I think that there's a really, I think that there's a better way to communicate it. So mm -hmm. if that feeling is coming up, if that feeling of I'm feeling invalidated is coming up, 
then that's really kind of the appropriate thing to say. And you can even say, and it obviously it depends on the relational dynamic. If this is person, the person that you've been seeing for a week, you're, yeah, who cares? You're gaslighting me, done. And relationship <laughs> over, balls up. I'm not going back to that. Let's yeah. say you've been with the person for a year and a half and you've noticed all of a sudden, they kind of have a pattern of invalidating me. And I'm kind of sick and tired of it. And maybe I wasn't aware of it because maybe I was used to something like that in a past relationship or maybe in childhood, that was something that I was used to, but I've grown and I'm not okay with that anymore. It's okay to find a way to say, I don't like when you talk to me that way. Notice I'm not saying anything about the person. Now you say that to somebody that doesn't know what's coming and it's gonna be really hard not to personalize that as I'm the problem. But there's a way to be able to say, when, you, when I share a feeling with you and you do anything other than just simply say, you're having that feeling, just reflecting the feeling, just sitting with me, holding space for the feeling. When you come back and you tell me about your feeling or you tell me that I'm not having that feeling, I feel very invalidated. So there's this, this invitational language. When you're doing this behavior, this is the feeling that comes up for me. Because if they do start arguing with that, the invalidation is increasing and they're not hearing it. And then that's where, that's where the tricky process of, do I stay in this relationship? Do I suggest counseling so that the therapist can help us see this process that's happening? Because again, if they react, they're reacting from a trauma response. It's not this person's job to fix this person's trauma response and vice versa. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting that you, um, I guess, defined abuse by gaslighting. Um, I think there are a bunch of different types of things that we could right. define as abusive, but gaslighting is, I think, the one that we hear going emotional, around. Yeah, the emotional abuse versus, um, because like physical abuse or something like that is like very clearly defined in many ways, but yeah, uh, and unfortunately, abuse is more confusing, I think. Yeah, and, and emotional abuse, unfortunately, doesn't get a lot of like, if somebody is physically abusing somebody else, you can call the police. There's a lot of resources out there, but if there's an emotional like, abuse going on. Gaslighting me, <laughs> like it's probably- Yeah, the cop's going to be like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And now you're gaslighting me. <laughs> yeah, probably true. Well, I'm curious. So let's take that situation and let's say like the time capsule exploded, right? Sure. And so then um, uh, there's like a lot of projection. There's a lot of stuff that's happening. And so for the person who the time capsule exploded, they're saying, you know, when you, they're taking that invitational language saying, when you do this, um, these are my feelings, then how, and that invalidates and that, so how do you, how do you deal with it, the time capsule? That's like, mm -hmm. well, that, wait, but that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. you if know? You're, so what you're, what you're asking is if, if the person is saying you did this thing, but the reality is that thing didn't actually happen. Yeah, because it's the time yeah. capsule that blew up. Right. 
Right. And so it's like there's two people accusing two people of gaslighting. Yeah. And yeah. and right there, uh, in in her book, um, uh, Dr. Heather McIntosh, she wrote a book called uh, Developmental um, Develop Developmental Therapy for Com Developmental Couples Therapy for Complex Trauma, um, and it's it's a manual. Um, it's really good if you like reading like how to do therapy. <laughs> it's fantastic, uh, and the, the 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 first beginning chapters are a lot of this education about this stuff. Phenomenal book. Um, and one of the, she calls them, uh, dyadic traumatic reenactments. So dyadic two, traumatic, we know that, and then reenactment and reenacting. What I think is really funny. And someday I'm going to ask her, um, did you, did you pick the acronym DTR for a reason? Because, <laughs> yeah. because if this is happening, we're going to have a determine the relationship conversation. <laughs> right. Like, like, was that a happy accident? <laughs> Cause that's, that's hilarious. Um, but DTR is a great, again, this is all about helping to increase each other's awareness because when you, when you become aware of a dyadic traumatic reenactment can be entered to from either side, because especially if a couple has been together for a decent amount of time, six months or so on, um, there's already going to be enough embeddedness in the relationship that little micro unconscious triggers are gonna send that, that traumatic reenactment happening. Uh, Sue Johnson, the founder of EFT calls them like demon dialogues. And she's, she's much more uh, 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 emotional in her language and she'll call them dancing the tango and, and the demon dialogues that are happening. And she's, she's just so wonderful. Um, but they can be entered into from either side. And so finding a, a way to say this traumatic reenactment that we keep finding ourselves into keeps getting in the way of the relationship that we want. Notice that I'm externalizing. I'm trying to create this thing that both of the couples can go. I was going to start swearing, but I don't know if I could do that on the podcast. Yeah, you can. <laughs> oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. That, that fucking dance is getting in our way again. <laughs> it's like that. It's the like gaslighting where it's like, when you do this, this is what uh, I, you know, this is my reaction. This is how I feel. But then that event never really happened. That's just right. That's right. Yeah. Great question. Fantastic question. Because as a partner, you're going to feel that because it's going to be like, whoa, that was, and you never, ever say this. That was way <laughs> over the top. <laughs> so somebody's having a traumatic reenactment and you say that was way over the top. That's gaslight. <laughs> Um, okay. what you say is, Hey, what's happening right now? You, you, and this, this can be really tricky because it can feel to the other person, like you're trying to avoid what's going on. So you can say something like, Hey, I can see that you're really upset. And I, I want to talk about that, but what's going on? Like what's happening for you right now? Because what that does is it helps bring them into the moment and they can, again, you have conversations about statements like this beforehand so that, because if you introduce this in the middle of the conversation, they're going to say, I'm pissed off at you because of, right. Yeah, you did that right. thing. That's what happened. Exactly. Right. But if you have a conversation beforehand, Hey, what's happening for you right now? Well, you did this thing and I'm really upset. And this is what I'm feeling. You can kind of begin to listen to what it is and then start reflecting. This is going to sound like one of the most cheesy things in the world. And when I first began my therapy training, I thought there's no way that's going to work. 
There's no way. Reflect back what they say. I hate that so much. Like, yeah. and it feels so awkward. Uh-huh. <laughs> so awkward. Doing it. Yeah. it feels so awkward. Wait, so Anne, in your experience, does it not work then? I mean, I'm not, uh, it always makes the other person feel heard. Oh, it does. Okay. Yes. For, for me personally, when somebody does it to me, like I want to stab them because I'm just like, I can, can we just not do this? Can we not? Wait, so, so for you, <laughs> you don't feel heard when someone does that to you? Wait, well, I'm trying to. I, well, because sometimes it needs to be like exactly how they said it. Because if you put it in your own words, mm-hmm. then they don't feel like they're heard. For me, I need the other person to put it in their own words. Yeah. So then I so can be like, that they you did hear it, it rather yeah. than yeah. you're just a fucking parrot. Yeah, yeah, that's annoying to me. So, so it sounds like, <laughs> and it sounds like what you're saying is. Thank you for the invitational language. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like what you're saying is there's a need that you have that if if you if you and your partner are are going to 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 do try and try and do this technique hypothetically, um, your you need to communicate to them. I want to hear you metabolize what I said and then try to summarize it back to me. Is that correct? Okay. That is accurate. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I need to express what I need uh, <laughs> before the my moment. needs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just and, like when you're doing it, it just feels awful sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes the awful feeling I've noticed sometimes awful feeling because, uh, and I'm a lot like you, if somebody says back to me, the thing that I just said, I'm like, yeah, I just said that. Good job. <laughs> Then I have to, but then I have to ask myself, <laughs> hold on a second. Was that a time capsule? Mm-hmm. Why did I, why that felt a little bit more harsh because they're like, just that back what I said. <laughs> yeah. Huh? It's like, where is that anger coming from? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's the time capsule. And I can yeah. talk from, from my stance, um, growing up with ADHD, um, and always feeling misunderstood. I want to know if somebody understands me. They understand me at a really, 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 really deep level. And so if they just say my words back, then I'm like, yeah, you don't get me. Now, there's a part to that. And this is kind of the way I think about it is it's kind of like, it's kind of like if that's there, somebody can, I think, meet that need up to about 70 or 80%. Because there's that last little bit and I'm never going to feel that way. And that that's my job to work on that part to, to, if my partner is really struggling to summarize and understand. And so they do pair it back that I can say, okay, the story that I'm telling myself, Brene Brown right now is that because you parroted back, you really don't care about what I really have to say. Is that happening for you? Or is that a time capsule for me? And then they can say, you know what? I'm really sorry. I have 20 things on my mind right now and I'm really having a hard time being present. I do care, but I have all this other stress that's going on. The emotional energy that I have right now is just to parrot things things back. Do we wanna talk about this later or can that be enough right now? So you're able to create a different dialogue. And now saying the story I'm telling myself and blah, 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 
is the most uncomfortable thing <laughs> in the world because you're pushing yourself into a deeper level of vulnerability that then they can also miss. But if you, as you begin doing this over and over again, and if they really do care and they're working on this with you, a partner is working on this with you, you'll start noticing that maybe those things that you fear about are maybe not quite as there as we thought they were. So attachment wise, we will seek to confirm that old narrative, even at the slightest bump towards it, because that's what we feel safe with. And we will, our unconscious will disconfirm anything that challenges that old narrative. So that's kind of a part of the thing too. So if my partner comes back and says, uh, no, I really do want to be present. My, that unconscious process is going to go, right. Mm -hmm. Even though, even though I, I want to hear them say that, right. Mm -hmm. So my, my favorite go-to is, Hey, what's happening right now? I, I get that you're, I get that you're really mad and I, and I want to get, I want to get to that. So we're, we're going to focus on that. Even here, here's a notepad. I'm writing it down. You said you were blah, blah, blah. <laughs> What's actually happening right now, though? What's happening in this moment for you? I want to be present with you. Do you want to sit down on the couch? Like you're finding a way to try and meet them. Now, this is all predicated on that you are a beacon of self-regulation, <laughs> right? Yeah. If you don't have, uh, I'm now in my sixth year of, uh, of grad school. If you don't have six years of grad school <laughs> training, then, uh, and that's common for getting a doctoral in clinical psychology. Um, for those of you who want to do that, <laughs> um, it's again, you talk about this outside of when it happens, you find a way to introduce um, breaks. I like to say time ends because timeouts feel punitive. Time in is I'm going to go and check in with myself and resource so that I can come back and have this conversation because right now I'm feeling so activated that I think we're going to enter into one of those DTRs. So again, it's, it's kind of a creating different pockets of ways to communicate um, what's going on, what's going on for you physiologically. I know that there's a spot on my back. <laughs> if I'm having a conversation with my partner and that spot starts to hurt, mm -hmm. I need to stop immediately because in about 20 minutes, we're gonna fight. Mm. because I'm getting dysregulated. My body tells that to me before my emotions do for me personally. I used to have like a little bit of Tourette's with my eye. It would just start twitching. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. That's very handy. <laughs> yeah. Hurts, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And you're like, stop, just stop, stop. Yeah. Your body's going, Hey, Hey, listen, Hey, Hey, listen. <laughs> yep. And the, the time ends just so that the, 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 the viewers and the listeners, um, uh, Dr. Dan Siegel has written a few books um, on like affect regulation. He's written a few books on like neuroscience that um, are very fun to read if you enjoy neuroscience. Um, if you don't <laughs> like that stuff, he's written books on a bunch of like stuff on kids. Uh, Whole Brain Child is a, is a popular one. Um, and he talks about, um, it, it takes the part of the brain that does that um, is, a, is, a, is a toddler. Um, and so it likes to throw fits. Um, we all have it. 
um, it's the limbic system. It's the emotional center of the brain. Uh, and the, the core part of that is called the amygdala. Um, and old school, uh, for those uh, neuroscience nerds out there, for people that want to learn more about the brain, amygdala is a funny word. Uh, it's an Italian word that means almond. Uh, and that's because uh, that part of the brain <laughs> looks like an almond because people that were naming this stuff were just absolutely brilliant. <laughs> uh, that part of the brain is hypersensitive to, to threat. It is the threat. It's like it looks for threat because it's much more important to remember where the Tyrannosaurus or the lion just about ate us. We need to remember where that was, right? <laughs> and so he, he talks about there's, he, he does, he does a, a hand brain model. And so if you hold your hand up like this, this part of the hand is like the brain stem. So like the, the very deep instinctual, I'm breathing, my heart's beating kind of lizard type uh, stuff. This is the, the uh, emotional center. So fight or flight stuff, fight or flight might be more down in here, uh, but attachment system, the connect system, all that stuff is there. And then this part up here is the most recently evolved part of the brain, which is the frontal cortex. This is the stuff that has an executive functioning, helps us calm down when we're upset. See how it soothes, it soothes that, that little almond oh, guy in there like that, right? <laughs> but just like, just like old part, right? It's handy. <laughs> but just like old school cartoons, when we get dysregulated, we blow our top. And using this can also be a way, because when we are, when we have a traumatic thing explode, one of, there's some research out there um, on, they did brain scans for people that are experiencing trauma and the part of the brain that expresses language shut down. So when I'm having a trauma reaction, the part of the brain that can communicate that it's happening goes, goodbye. Kind of like old school AOL. <laughs> so being able to have physical body gestures allows you to communicate something. So you could even in the middle of a conversation, just go. <laughs> and that can communicate. I'm starting to get in that direction. And then if something blows up, you can just do this. And then maybe like that for time in or something. So there's ways that you can do it that can feel, I can still communicate the thing that I need, even if my, that speech center is going offline. You're very smart. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been reading a lot for the past six years. years and we can get this smart. <laughs> no, maybe yeah. not actually. <laughs> That's assuming you don't forget knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I sure I mean I forget questions people ask me so I hope I don't <laughs> let's say our our listeners our watchers are like oh I I want him to be my sex coach like are well, you I'm a sex coach too yeah oh yeah I didn't oh I, didn't, I forgot oh, we about didn't that in the introduction by so the way like, I'm a sex coach too a sex coach um are you are you currently taking on new clients? And if so, how would somebody get in touch with you? So unfortunately, I'm not taking on new clients. Uh, my workload <laughs> in grad school is, is very prohibitive <laughs> in that way. Um, however, um, we can, um, I'm, I'm sure that we can connect them with some people. The, the coaching organization, Theoretic Blueprints, um, TM, I don't know how to say that in a podcast, Liana, it's like copyright. Isn't that just, just copyright? Whatever the case is. <laughs> um, um, there, 
one of the big initiatives is becoming more trauma-informed. And so they're doing some amazing trainings right now on getting, getting everybody really good and in, in trauma-informed. And the person that's doing the training I've talked with and met and is an incredible person with a wealth of knowledge, more than, more than me, um, on, on how to work with, with people and couples. Um, and so if there is a couple out there um, that is like, uh, like the sex life thing is the primary focus um, and there's trauma in the background, absolutely we can refer them and get them connected. If, if the trauma is going on and their, their entire relationship and other things, it's more global is going on, um, then connect them. Uh, if they're in California, um, I, have, I have some resources that I can send them to get them connected with trauma-informed couples therapists and um, individual therapists as well too. Um, and if not, I can uh, help give them a little bit of guidance on how do you find a therapist that is trauma-informed um, and that will, that'll work well, because that's, that kind of, that's kind of scary. If yeah. you've got a lot of relational trauma, how do I, how do I find somebody that, that's going to really understand and hold space for me the right way? That's a scary thing. And when safety is what you're consumed, yeah, right? you're trying absolutely. to find that. Yeah. yeah. Especially when the therapist says safety isn't important. It is important. I want to make sure that I say that personal safety is important. <laughs> um, actually, now that we brought up the sex coaching, can you like, um, <laughs> which I forgot about, um, can you um, sort of explain how you're going to use that in, in your um, future therapy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so my plan is to uh, basically bridge um, uh, the sex coaching stuff in with or the, 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 the dynamic of the erotic blueprints into uh, the couple's work that I do. Because I think, I think that the erotic blueprints do a great job of giving extra language um, around how to communicate a lot of this stuff um, and I think that each of the blueprints, because it talks about the shadow of the blueprint, necessarily taps into where some wounds are. And if we're looking at wounds, I'll bet you we're going to find some, some traumatic experiences in the past, um, whether that's through chronic misattunement, uh, whether there are some shapeshifters out there that feel like that they're too much, or your energetics that feel like emotionally I don't feel safe, or sensuals that feel like physically I don't feel safe um, or you know whatever the case is um, I'm, I'm going to try to work that into the work because you know a big part of a lot of couples relationships is their sex life and when when there's a lot of trauma that's one of the first things that that takes a punch um, and is really difficult to engage in but sexuality, um, even exploring things like kink and BDSM can be incredibly healing um, done in consensual and proper ways. There's even initiatives out there uh, that are using, uh, sex therapists are using kink and BDSM type techniques with their clients to help heal trauma. There's some research and some people out there doing that. It's so cool. Wow, that's really interesting. Cause yeah, that's like, I imagine that is where, and, and actually really important to do it with someone who, you know, is well-versed in consent and boundaries, because I can imagine like, if you're going into kink without any 
you know, um, it can be actually re-traumatizing. Yes. You don't have those yes. uh, structures yeah. in place. Do you have anything else to add, Jeremy? <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is kind of an interesting point is to bring up, um, and I think both of you have kind of either alluded to it or mentioned to it directly is the concept of like generational trauma. Mm. And without, because that is a whole podcast in of itself. And there's a ton of, if you just Google generational trauma, a lot of stuff will come up. Um, but it's important because sometimes an experience, a, a traumatic experience, or a, a traumatic reaction that you're having isn't necessarily from something that's happened in your specific past. Um, and there's a lot of different ways of thinking about this. Um, so what I'm getting ready to say, the two ways that I'm going to talk about aren't it. There's, there's other things. So if, if somebody hears this and it doesn't resonate with their experience, I'd encourage them to find a trauma therapist or do a little bit more research on their own because there's other ways of thinking about this other than what I'm getting ready to say. Um, one of them is through the relational dynamic that we talked about. Um, I think that there's a cliche saying out there, but it's so good. Uh, trauma that's not transformed is transmitted. And so if, if I'm doing some gaslighting behavior, then I've been gaslit, then they've been gaslit, then so on and so forth. This is a relational dynamic that's happening. What's incredible is when you realize that dynamic is happening, if you realize, oh, wow, I do tend to, I do tend to invalidate you now have an incredible opportunity to break that cycle from your family. And so it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful opportunity that again, tra traumatic reactions usually are adaptive at one point in time, right? And now it's become problematic, but you get to change that process. Um, the other thing is it can be a biological kind of a genetic thing. Um, there's a term called epigenetics. Um, people in the past used to say, well, it's just in the DNA or it's just in the genes. Well, they, researchers found out that it's actually, it's not quite that simple. Um, there are on, on genes, there are these little things called, and I never can pronounce this word right, alleles, alleles, <laughs> alleles. They're like little light switches. Um, and so you could have somebody that is um, like Einstein level genius, right? genetic predisposition for incredible intelligence, um, but grows up in, in, in deep, deep poverty. And so is constantly in survival mode. And so there's, there's nothing to ever flip those switches on. You could have somebody that doesn't have incredible intelligence, but's given ton of privilege and ton of education and space for things. And so, so there's the, the, all this, the switches could be turned on, but there's no switches to turn on. <laughs> So, so there's, there's, it, so it gets really complex. Part of the genetic part of this, the or the generational trauma is there was a study done on rats. Rats aren't people, but they found parallels in people where they took a mom that hadn't had pups yet or had had pups, but wasn't currently pregnant and did this thing where they paired the scent of lavender with a shock, uh, which sounds incredibly inhumane. Shocks are very minor. Um, Basically, what wound up happening was anytime that the eventually anytime the mom rat smelled lavender, uh, heart rate would elevate um, and there would be withdrawing behavior, avoidant behavior, you want to avoid lavender at all cost. The stuff that we talked about it, it was in essence a stress or a trauma response. Um, she then had pups. 
these pups happened to have oh, a wow. significant more amount of receptors for lavender than the generations prior and would avoid lavender. They were never shocked. Right. So there can be that kind of a generational carryover as well too. Um, so that's where it gets tricky in the original question that we kind of came in with this is how do we, how do we, we talk about trauma and from a global perspective, like a meta perspective, we can, we can define it and all that kind of stuff. But from a subjective experience, somebody may need to actually be able to say, I'm having a traumatic reaction because that is their subjective experience, but they can't place anything in the past. They need to be able to use that language so that they can feel some kind of validation so that they can begin moving through it as that kind of a process. Yeah, that's interesting. But even what, if that was the case, um, the markers that you were talking about to pay attention to. Right. For that's the really what you, what you pay, you know, determine like whether or not your trauma is you know because yeah because maybe you don't you don't remember having experienced any trauma but you have all those markers so that's something to yeah at some point you said um it's not your job in a relationship to fix someone else's trauma i think that it comes down to when we are focused on what the other person is doing or saying or any of that type of stuff that's really tricky because we can't do literally anything about the other person at all. All we can do is communicate our needs and wish that the other person is going to respond. And let me rephrase that because that actually needs to be broken down into two things. Communicate our need and then communicate that we want them to meet that need. Because some people sometimes will communicate a need and it's like, subtly passive aggressively implied that they're expected to meet it. <laughs> I That's said it. Why didn't you do exactly, it? <laughs> right? Exactly. The, the problem on that other side though, is if the other person has a traumatic response of compliance, feeling expected to do something, that's going to, that's, that's going to be a, a reenactment, right? So it, it becomes when we're talking about trauma, getting uh, annoyingly painfully clear in, in communication is really the most important thing. And as time goes on, the need for the painful, clear communication lifts a little bit. And so you're not necessarily either, it becomes second nature to talk like that, or you don't have to do quite as many steps anymore as time goes on because safety is built between the two rather than, um, rather than being forced. Um, until so, the time capsule comes back. Right, yeah, 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 and yeah, exactly, <laughs> until a new one does, right. Um, so I would say, if you feel like that you're in a place where you're doing more caregiving than you feel comfortable doing, it's time to have some kind of a conversation. And those kind of conversations are uncomfortable, but it's gonna be really important to get really deeply, deeply in touch with what is the need that you have? I think using, um, are either of you familiar with nonviolent communication? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I try only to use that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's tricky and difficult to use. He, he oh, no. backs me up so much. It's obviously not what I'm thinking then. 
Uh, oh, so there's there's actually a process called nonviolent communication by um, uh, Rosenberg, Mar Marshall Rosenberg. Okay. I can't. It's going to be something close to that. <laughs> you type in nonviolent communication into Google, it'll come up. Well, one of the things that he says that is there's two things that he says that are so good to me. Needs are gifts that you get to give to somebody else. We are not programmed to think that way. We're programmed to think that our needs are burdens. But when you when you when when you're able to begin to see your need as a gift that in communicating it and in the negotiation of meeting it creates intimacy and creates closeness, then it's then you're able to move into I want to share my need. But it's got to be really clear. He also says the second thing that he says that I think is great is that um, uh, diagnosing or assessing somebody, uh, anger, uh, judgment, and criticism are tragic expressions of an unmet need. So if I'm blowing up and I'm getting angry, or if I'm stoic and I'm saying, well, you're doing this because blah, 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 there's a need underneath there that's not being met. So if you're feeling like you're in a caregiving role and the way that you realize this is by saying they're really needing me a lot and that they're really caretaking a lot, well, it's a judgment. So there's an unmet need that needs to be communicated somehow. And I think that using his process um, works really well um, in, in figuring out how to kind of navigate that. Okay. Yay. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Yeah, thank, um, you. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah. It was really, I think, helpful, wasn't it? Illuminating. Yeah. Illuminating. I think very helpful. And I mean, like, honestly, you have so much knowledge, so we could probably talk forever. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm pretty passionate about this stuff, so. <laughs> and I will never now forget the brain and right, where everything exactly. is. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. It's really my brain. Look how big my brain is. <laughs> Got you. <laughs> look Leona's how big brain my explodes. brain is. <laughs> Hers explodes out. <laughs> the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity is available as a podcast on Spotify and Amazon Music. You can also like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. And if you want to help us grow, then you can become a patron on Patreon. And that's it, right? I think that's, that's it. it. Yeah. <laughs>